everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We want to invite you to learn more about the heart and vision of City of Lights. So check out our website at cityoflights.church and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at City Lights Indie. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message. morning we are beginning with our better series and over the course of the next five weeks we'll be unpacking this series looking at various characters in scripture uh, particularly characters in the Old Testament and looking at the Old Testament with fresh eyes within the lens of Jesus one of the things that's very important for us to understand is that the whole of the scripture is about Jesus The whole of the scripture, all of the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus didn't just show up late to the party in the New Testament, right? He wasn't just like having a very, you know, a timely entrance into his own celebration and party. The whole of the scripture is about Jesus. I'm really excited. We're going to begin here to kind of give a caveat, but it's going to be a great time. And particularly on the 10th, I'm really thrilled. One of my dear friends, old roommate, Brian Uh, Taylor is going to be visiting us from our Every Nation Church in Cincinnati. He's going to make that drive on over and share with us. And so it's going to be a great series. I encourage you to invite some people. But specifically today, what I want to help us to frame properly is that understanding of how we see the Scripture. Now, I grew up in the church. As early as I can remember from when I was in the womb, I was in a church somewhere. And I'm thankful for my church experience. And uh, I remember particularly, you know, back in the day when we were in church, we were in church, like, all the time. Like my dad was on the worship team, so if the doors were open somewhere, we were going to be there. And particularly when it came to the weekends, everything started, you know, it's like, like I said, they say you don't win Super Bowls in the postseason, you win them in the offseason. And so we would start the weekend by... where we're sending prayers up, we're tearing down principalities, we're calling in the blessing, we're sending out demonic spirits. I mean, it was like intense prayer warriors, like the church mothers that like, I mean, just the hardcore church mothers would be there. And, you know, I would go there in the morning mainly because I knew that if I was quiet and I went and prayed, there was a good possibility that we were going to go across the street to McDonald's so I could get a biscuit. But it started. It started in prayer. And that's one of the things that we believe here. We believe that the battle begins on our knees when we intercede. One of the things I'd encourage you and invite you to do, we have some people that have already been gathering on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock in one of the, in the workout room back here to pray and believe for God what God's going to do. But it started on Saturday morning. And then Sunday morning we were in there. My dad was leading worship. My dad would kick off the worship service, and, and, you know, I would sit there and just look up my dad and celebrate and sing, and I would marvel at the technological advancement in our new transparency machine. And, you know, back in the day, we didn't have screens or these beautiful projectors. You had a transparency machine that had these little transparencies that were either typed. If you're real fancy, you'd have the words typed on this transparency, and it would slide up, and it would project it up on the screen. Uh, a lot of times we weren't that fancy and somebody would have written on it with the Sharpie and you were just praying that whoever was working the transparency machine wasn't the lady with the shaky left hand because um, we just have a hard time reading them. You know, it's okay. We can laugh. God bless that lady. Jesus loves her. 
We just couldn't read the words. Um, and so after worship, they would dismiss us kids to the children's church. So we go out to the children's church. We go down. And uh, one of the things that just stood out to me, I don't know if your church experience was like this, if you were blessed in this way, but our particular church has to be blessed with this magical thing called a felt board. And the felt board, it had these little felt Bible characters. And I mean, it was fully loaded. I mean, we had whales. We had a full-out table for the Last Supper. We even had a prefigged Adam and Eve. I mean, this thing was fully loaded. And in this two-dimensional form, they would place the different characters from the Bible stories, and we'd look at David and Goliath and talk about how we can be brave like David and we can worship like David. And, you know, we'd look at Abraham and we'd look at put him up on the 2D picture and we look at, okay, we can have faith. We want to be, we want to have faith and trust God like Abraham. And we look at all these characters, you know, look at Jonah and the big fish and talk about, hey, don't disobey. You might get swallowed up by a fish, which can freak a kid out, especially when they visit the aquarium and they're like, wait, did I disobey today? Uh, I don't think that thing can swallow me. I'm good. You know, and so we would watch this, and you know, one of the things, one of the funniest pieces to me was the disciples, because they got, you could tell, like, either somebody just got tired cutting these felt pieces, or they were trying to be really, like, uh, efficient, because, like, uh, Peter, James, and John had their own figure, and then Judas had his own figure, but the other guys, kind of like the bench players, they were all just one big figure, um, which, they're not bench players, we love them, thank you, Lord, for the apostles, um, but it was just funny, but, you know, we would go, and we would learn, and, and it was great, but my little linear brain, a lot of times, what I would kind of take away is, you know, all of these things were kind of just telling us how to, how to do good, how to do do the right thing, how to be better, and we learned some good moral lessons, but sometimes I didn't quite understand that the point of the gospel wasn't just to be a good boy. And, you know, then at night, we would have night service, and at night service, a lot of times, one of the things we would do, sometimes because my mom let me, and sometimes because I just snuck them into my little pants, is I would have these little G.I. Joe or two action figures, because they didn't have children's church at night, so we would try to keep ourselves occupied, and there were no iPhones or iPad touches that you could give the kid, like, hey, shut up, we're trying to hear about Jesus. Um, so I would take, you know, my little adventure characters and I would come up with these epic stories and, you know, how this character, you know, I would a lot of times team up the Transformers with the G.I. Joes and there was this incredible battle and there was a hero of the whole thing and I would be so excited and so enthralled by this little make-believe story in my mind during the church service. And what I've realized over time is that many times we, we lack a passion in our walk with God or many people have experienced a form of religion or they've given up on church or they've given up on engaging within the community of faith because what the takeaway was was just a bunch of stories and, and moralism to help me do the right thing and be better and be a good boy or be a good girl. And what you realize over time is that, that that actually just doesn't work. Like if being good was the whole, all we needed to do to solve the problem of sin, gosh, wouldn't, that, wouldn't we be in a better place? But we, we live in a world where being good doesn't cut it. Meanwhile, 
There is a much greater gospel and truth in the good news of Jesus that we many times we just kind of shrink it down, distill it, and take away all the good bits and just distill it down to a little effeminate guy with a sheep around his neck who just goes, be blessed. As though that is our great hero. As though that is the whole of the gospel, that that guy loves me. It's real quiet this morning. It's okay. What we need to understand and what I want to help us get is that if we don't truly understand the fullness of the story of the scripture, that the whole story of the Bible is about the gospel, not just the gospels. If we don't do, if we don't understand that and grasp that, there are certain detrimental habits that we can form and great treasure that we can miss out on. This morning I want to start out by talking about some of the challenges and some of the reasons it's important for us to grasp that Jesus, what he has done and our identity in him is the whole, is the point of the good news of the gospel. When we don't get this, when we don't see the bigger picture and the grander picture of what God was doing throughout the story, there are three things. Number one is we begin to think that the scripture is all to help me get the guy, get the girl, get the job, get the, get the, you know, have the health, not have the disease, help me to get the blessings and do better, help me to just do better. And so the whole thing is just revolved around me. I messed up, I need help, and we reduce the scripture to a self-help manual, where it's just another good idea. You know, I like, you know, it's kind of like we just look at Jesus like a really nice, inspirational writer. I like some of the things he wrote. Some of those things were helpful. It's amazing to me how people who don't actually believe in Jesus as king and rescuer can actually put his principles in play in their lives more than Christians do, and they actually see some blessing come from it. You know, it, it's not like the whole, you know, when I talk about moralism, the point of it, and I'll, I'll expand on this later, it's not that morals are bad, it's not that good character is bad, it's not that they're, it's not a good thing to do right, but the point is that is not the whole of the scripture. And when we forget that Jesus is actually the theme and the point of the whole thing, we can have this misconception that when he shows up, he's just showing up for us. We look at Jesus like Nick Foles. You know? I, I, I hear you, Jason. God bless you. I know. Nick Foles is like Satan to you, but that's all right. Patriots fan. God bless him. That's part of our reconciliation. We walk in covenant with each other. But you know, it's like, you know what? We were doing good. We were having a good life. We were having a good season. And then, man, oh gosh, oh, we lost our quarterback. Man, we fell on hard times. But Jesus, he showed up in the postseason. And because of the run that he had, he had a really good run, y'all. I'm telling you, he was here for 33 years, rose up on three days, and now we can rejoice if we can just trust him in the promised land. And go now is it my turn oh gosh hey guys I hope you like me oh you don't you know it's like 
We dumb down the power and the love of Jesus, the power of the gospel, and we make it all about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. The second thing that can tend to happen if we don't understand and see this properly is we adopt a gospel. I've alluded to this before. We adopt a gospel of moralism instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The goal of the gospel is not be good. When we reduce the gospel to just being good, what we do is we, we, we create this imaginary construct that has so many holes in it that all the grace, all of the truth, all of the power of the love of God just can't even be held. You will never be good enough. Can you hear? I know that's, that's such a weird thing to hear a pastor say when you're like, wait, I came to church, I thought there was hope. Yes, there is hope, but I want you to understand that your hope is not based on what you're going to do. The scripture says that even our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. It's not that we don't want to pursue righteousness. It's not that we don't want to pursue truth. But the reality is that you will never be good enough to earn your way to heaven. You will never be good enough to satisfy the full weight and the debt of sin. And the truth is that when we preach this kind of gospel or when we portray this or when we just kind of um, digest the gospel of good news instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually damn people to their pride or despair. Because then you've got a bunch, I mean, think about it this way. Many of the very religious elite that crucified Jesus, they were actually good guys. I know we see it because when we look at some of the, the passion of the Christ, we look at some of the cartoons, like always the Pharisees are made out to be like these staunch, grizzled, like crusty guys with big hats and cold hearts. You know, it's like really pious Grinches. And we get this picture, but the reality is many of these men were priests that had set themselves apart. They had abstained from many things. They had meditated on the Torah. They had memorized the scriptures, and they were trying to do good things, and yet their goodness actually hindered them from seeing the truth of Jesus because they'd become good in their own eyes. They'd become self-righteous. And so their pride was their demise. For some of us, that was never my problem. I never thought I was like, I'm just so good. My thing was, I just felt like a hot mess. I could never be good enough. I remember walking, particularly in my early 20s, just every morning was such a depressing act because I would wake up with a list of things that I felt like I had to do in order to be worthy, worthy of God's affection, worthy of others' affection, to be good enough, man enough, a good enough singer, a good enough this, that, and the other. And even, inevitably, even if I checked a couple off, and man, I'd have some good days. I'm like, man, I was a good day. I was a good boy. Jesus, did you like that? And you're like, that'll do, pig. Like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Even on those days, I would get to bed and realize, man, but I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, and it was just like, it just didn't even matter. Why? Because my gospel, gospel was built on the foundation of what I did, not on the revelation of who Jesus is. The third thing that can happen if we don't see the scripture appropriately is we miss out on the intensity of the amazing love of God. 
amazing, and, and I think it's appropriate that Valentine's is this week because if you want to, sometimes if you don't know what went into a gift, you don't see it right. You can either overlook it or neglect it if you don't really understand what went in gift. In the same way, it can actually affect the way that we praise and the way that we respond to such a gift. Gentlemen, learn by what, not by what I've done, but what I should not have done. Uh, there's been, when it comes to Valentine's, Kelly can attest, I'm trying, I'm working on it. I'm, a, I'm, I'm working on improvement. I'm really believing we're going to get a win this week in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. But men, I've had some horror stories when it came to Valentine's. Um, like some, some of the worst things that I could have done, uh, and uh, just being transparent, it's like, don't ever like ask a girl to go out on a Valentine's date and then be like, Hey, um, so, uh, my car hasn't worked for a little bit, so could you pick me up? Would that be cool? Like, I'll, I'll like, still open the door. Like, I'll pretend, you know, and so Kelly's giving me a ride. I think I, I don't, did I even, did I borrow money to get flowers for you one time? Did I do that? No, just, thank you. She's covering me. She's covering me. But, you know, I mean, you could tell, especially if you ever run into a CV. dudes are like going in the hallmark aisle like that looks good oh okay i mean it's you know you could tell it was just like and so then you show up you don't even have a note in there the flowers look kind of grody because they were picked over they were the last ones and then you like drive around for five hours looking for a place to eat because everybody's closed and then you end up going to waffle house and trying But sometimes we can look at when we hear, because we get so overly familiar with it. I think Judah had actually mentioned it today. We can get used to hearing about Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And we hear this, that we actually, it just becomes cheap in our ears. It becomes like a 99-cent Hallmark card. And we get it, and we're like, oh, thanks, Jesus. Now help me do good. We don't understand, again, that, that the gift of Jesus, the love of God made manifest, did not just show up in the second half. It was there from the very beginning. You know, from when you look at the book of beginnings in Genesis, chapter 3, is where there's a theological word for us, it's proto-evangelium. And basically what it means is the first gospel. We see the first Glimpse the first declaration of the gospel, not in the New Testament, not in the gospels, but actually revealed at the very point of our brokenness. When Adam and Eve had broken covenant with God, they had given in to temptation. He didn't show up on the scene in the garden to shame them. He didn't come in to say, how dare you? What was wrong with you? I gave you everything and you screwed it up. Get out of my way. That wasn't God's attitude at all. See, sometimes we kind of get this, another myth of the scripture is that Old Testament is mean God. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament and goes, hey, dad, chill. I got this. <laughs> no. 
God demonstrated his love out the jump. It says, I want to read this in, in, it's just one verse. But in Genesis, I want you to see it in your Bible if you have it. I like people to see things in their own Bible so they know I'm not making it up. It's actually a good practice because some people do like to make things up. In Genesis 3, verse 4, Jesus has come and he's basically laid out, this is the situation. But he says this, I will put enmity, speaks to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above, I'm beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, when he says this word offspring, it's not just referring to her direct children, but actually to the whole of humanity. There will be enmity between the enemy and humanity. And he says this of her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the foreshadowing that Satan, you think you've won today. You think you have ever shamed this people. But I want you to know that you have picked a fight that you were not prepared for. See, then later on, as we get into this chapter, what you understand is that through the, pro- through the process of the fall, of sin coming into the earth, Adam and Eve were able to recognize their nakedness. And not only, it wasn't the point that they recognized they were naked, but there was shame attached to it. The enemy had attached shame to their person. That's not what God has called us to walk in. He's called us to be, it says it even in, right before this happened, he says they were naked and unashamed. So now through the fall, shame has come. And they did what we all do, is they tried to make man-made coverings. They went and found some leaves, leaves that will eventually wither and fail. And they took leaves and they tried to cover themselves up. I like to call it fig leafing. So often we like to take things and we try to make up man-made ways to cover up our brokenness and shame. Whether it be a job, relationships, careers, fanaticism about something, uh, our vices, addictions. We try to find these things to mute, to numb, to cover up what cannot be covered on our own. And what God does is it says he took from an animal. It's the, forta- it's the foreshadowing of the very first blood sacrifice that the wages of sin, the cost of sin, would be blood, that blood would be spilled. And he says he made coverings for them. This is in Genesis, that God came to man and woman in the midst of their shame, that blood was shed, that their sin and their brokenness would be covered. This was a force that he was saying, when we were, lived in Jackson, uh, Tallahassee, we were over some friend's house and uh, uh, the, the Shivers, they were on staff of this church. And at the time, uh, one of the things uh, that I'm a huge, I mean, I love a great lasagna. And particularly, I love it when it's cooked by like real Italians that like had grandmothers that came over the water to, to make sure that it was right. And they'll just slap them if it's, the sauce hasn't been cooked properly. Um, and so this lady particularly who was making it for us, she had some Italian descent. And she was telling us about this recipe. And this recipe that she was giving us was like one of those like seven-hour recipes, right? 
I mean, when you taste it, you could taste the layers of flavor. And when we were partaking of it, and, and, and I was just having a, a moment of glory and, and praise and worship in my seat, she started telling me, she's like, I'm glad you guys can appreciate it because I had a big, we had, the, they had the football team, they were doing athletic outreach, and they would have the football team come over. And when the football players would come over, she said, she stopped making this recipe for them because when they just saw lasagna, they didn't get what had gone into it. And so these knucklehead, 20-something-year-old meathead guys would come in and say, hey, you got some ranch? And they would proceed to douse ranch all over this eight-hour, amazing, glorificamus lasagna. They would, I mean, that sauce took so long just to get the flavors to melt so that they could enjoy it. And then they completely eradicate it by just pouring ranch dressing all over it. So she just, whenever the guys would come over, she would just go to Costco and get like a Stouffer's frozen lasagna. Because she knew that they weren't going to appreciate it. Let's not treat the love and the power of God like some little microwave, quick fix lasagna. God wants us to understand what you partake in. I have been at work from day one. From day one. The main text I want to read in, if you could turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. There's an encounter with these two disciples, and Jesus catches them on the road to this village called Emmaus. And they too were having a challenge understanding the great depth of what they are a part of. These were not one of the 12. They were probably one of the uh, many others that had come and gathered and listened to the teachings and followed along and had anticipated and had believed earnestly that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But they had just recently watched him be crucified, humiliated publicly. You know, it's like when we think about Jesus being beaten, savagely beaten and mutilated and hung and murdered, we think about that and sometimes been with him even beyond the free fish and loaves who had given their lives, who had given up their work, their livelihood, who had turned down promotions, who had turned, who had risked public ridicule, that they were now made fools and trying to figure out, what, what am I going to do now? And so you, he meets these guys, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, meets these guys on the road and begins to interact with them and help them see things appropriately. It says, that very day, in verse 13 of chapter 24, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, when they say all these things that had happened, Jesus had been crucified three days prior. They were, you know, probably some good boys, so they were staying in Jerusalem to see if he was going to show up when they thought he would. And at the time, Mary Magdalene 
and others had come to the tomb and they had seen that Jesus was not in the tomb. And they had claimed, and I, I think it's interesting how the scripture, they, the, these disciples, you could tell that they weren't really believing what they had heard from these ladies. They had claimed that they had met these two angels and that they had said that he is no longer here, he is alive, and yet that read this in a moment, but it says, while they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them said, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in those days? And he said to them, well, what what things? I love how Jesus kind of leads us, (laughs) leads us on. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, beside all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found that it was as the women said, but yeah, him they didn't see. So Jesus says, he says, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He began to lay out for these how everything that had happened had been foretold in the whole of scripture. That he didn't just show up out of nowhere. This was a part of the plan. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. When I see this, I'm just, I just have to marvel at the personality of Jesus right now, y'all. First of all, he sneaks up on these guys, and, you know, he's kind of like having fun with them but helping them. You know, it's like when you're trying to help a kid learn something, and you know the answers, and you know they don't know it, but you're trying to help them figure it out along the way. And, you know, he does this thing where he's like, he acted as though he was going So it says, uh, he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And he appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. We see here in the situation, much like us, when things don't happen the way that we thought they would based on our interpretation, that we can make it about us and be found with our heads hanging and forlorn. Aid the scripture and the gospel about us is manifest when we don't get our way. Now, mind you, this was a pretty incredible tragedy. This wasn't just like I didn't get the promotion that I wanted, I didn't win this round of the HQ quiz. This was, I have just witnessed my teacher, my friend, the hope that we had put our trust in excruciatingly destroyed physically our hearts have been crushed i mean this was this was bigger than a super bowl loss y'all and yet and yet they were consumed to the extent that they didn't even recognize him when he was there with their own issues and their own grief and their own disappointment about my situation. Jesus was helping them come to a place of understanding who he is, what he has done, and how that should frame the way that we look at everything around us. Why does it change things? Because it reminds us. It helps us to get our eyes off ourselves and remember that it's all about Jesus. You see, one thing that Jesus is about is his glory and the restoration of his family. When you look at the beginning of Scripture, the goal, the two things that we see is one, God was building a family. He was building a family in such a way that we were made in his image, that wherever we are, that his glory, his presence would be revealed throughout all the earth. So when the fall happened and sin came, we were cut off from him. than him and he has desired what we can rejoice we can have hope not because of what we've done but because of who he says we are and I tell you who he says we are as that we are his now you can say now I mean that that's that's great you know but but why is that so powerful because when you understand um I wish you would try to come and take one of our kids from my wife. Because you would find out really quickly that her love and her, I would say not her love, but her wrath also, would be known not by what little Johnny does, but by who he is. Let me tell you what little Johnny does. Little Johnny poops on himself. He poops on himself in the car. He poops on himself in his bed. He poops on himself at the table and will let you know, will pause and, oh, I got to poop. 
wait, I'm good. I'm good. I've done it. I'll let you clean it. If we just loved our children based on what they did, based on just eating all of our food, driving us crazy, taking us to the end. I mean, yes, they're cute. I thank God that they're cute. And we love them, and it's a greater investment. But we will fight for our children, and we pursue them with love because they are ours. And he has pursued us from day one, not because of what you have done, but because of who we are. And on top of that, because his desire is that his glory would fill the earth. And so Jesus set a plan in motion, and he is communicating to these guys, hey, what I said was true. I'm about restoring not only my people, but my glory in the earth. When we see the scripture the way that Jesus wants to see it, we understand it's not about us. There's a greater thing at play. He began to lay out for them through the whole of scripture who he is and why what had happened needed to, be, to happen. And, and there's a couple things that we can do. Like I said, when I was growing up, and it wasn't any fault to a teacher, moral teachings are good. But it's important that that's not the only thing that we're teaching ourselves, let alone our children. And one of the things that we started doing at the beginning of the year is reading through the Read Scripture app. I would highly encourage you to download this, whether you started at the beginning of the year or not. One of the things I love about it is it helps to communicate the whole of the story so that we understand from day one that it was all about Jesus. The other thing that I would encourage you to do, and it's kind of funny because it's made for kids, but I actually get a whole lot out of it, is there is a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, it's one that we give out, we hand out when we do baby dedications. But we had just gotten this for our kids, and it helps connect every single story to point to Jesus. And it helps remind us that Jesus didn't show up in just the last quarter or the latter third, but he was, he's the focus from the beginning. And I can't tell you how many times I've been reading some of these stories, and I'm reading this to the kids, and I'm like, wait, it's got me. Just as God begins to arrest my heart when I see, wait a second, this wasn't just about me being good. This wasn't just about me not lying. This is about me understanding that I can't do this on my own. That I actually needed, and this is the thing that the disciples, as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, this little two and a half hour journey back to their neighborhood, what they needed to understand is that you actually needed me to go through that. It wasn't just a happenstance. We needed Christ to be broken and bruised. We needed him to be crucified. We needed his blood to be spilt because he was the only worthy sacrifice. He was the only one that not only lived the life that we should have lived, but died the death that we should have died in our place. And he had to die, not only to die, but to be raised on the third day. Why? To satisfy the debt of our sin. They had to hear as he laid out through the scriptures, that this did not just, act, this wasn't an accident. This was like, oh, we're here, we're here, we're here. Oh, no, that wasn't a catch. No, this was part of the plan from the beginning. The other thing that will help us in keeping that Jesus is the center is one, getting our eyes off ourselves. But the second thing is this. Kyle, you can go ahead and come up. I love that they invited him to their table. Now, as they began to have this conversation, and they're walking with him, and he's unpacking the scripture, 
it wasn't enough for them just to have a conversation, but they actually wanted to fellowship. And I think that it can be easy for us to get into the habit of just hearing the stories, hearing the stuff, hearing it on a podcast or in a Sunday morning service, and not actually bringing it home. Not actually inviting Jesus and the fullness of his gospel to actually come home with us, come to our dorm, come to our office, come to our workplace. You see, it's not just a one-stop thing where all of a sudden we're like, okay, Jesus is the center of it all. It's actually about intentionally inviting him to that table, coming and sitting in his presence. I love that it tells us that it wasn't until they've been talking to him for like two and a half hours, having this incredible conversation. He's unpacking the scriptures for him. He comes into the house. But it wasn't until he had blessed the bread, he had broken it, this table of fellowship, where it says their eyes were opened. God wants to come to your house. He wants you to see him in every area of your life. He doesn't want you to just know that he is the focus of the scripture. He wants you to know that he is called to be the center of all that we do. And it's not until we actually begin to walk with him, bring him into our spaces, break bread with him, fellowship with him, that we truly understand the whole of who he is. He is about relationship. Not just the do's and the don'ts and the list of things that we should have done better. The last thing is this. Seeing Jesus as the center of it all, it helps our hearts to burn with his love. As I said before, if we don't know what went into a thing, we can oftentimes overlook it or make it light. And the whole of the Old Testament was not just a bunch of, you know, I'll say it this way. When people, many times, out of good intent, people have often said, and I've heard this said in church, where it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And so what happens is that maybe out of short-sightedness, insecurity, poor interpretation of Scripture, people can over-glorify the New Testament and act as though the Old Testament, we don't really need that. That's just the law. And so we look at the Old Testament as like, you know, that was like the awkward teen years and we were like pimple-faced and we're just glad we're out of that. It's part of my story, but I don't want to show you those pictures. And God wants us to see that that is part of the whole story. And that it wasn't just a part of the story of shame and judgment. But it was actually the part of a story of redemption. Leading us and helping us as he was to the two on the road to Emmaus. Helping to lead us to a point where we see Jesus 
appropriately. Because you see what happened is in the Old Testament, you know, we have the book of the law, the beginning. And humanity, as we do, we gravitate towards things thinking that this is going to be the thing. So the answer to our problems is the law. So if we follow the law, that's our ticket. And then we find, eventually, they don't want to follow the law. The law, we, we, we can't follow the law. It's impossible for us to follow the law. You know what we need? We need judges. That'll do it. That'll help us figure it out. If we just had judges to judge the righteous and judge the wrongdoers and to tell us what to do and to smite the evil ones, that would be our solution. The judges thing didn't work out the way we thought it would. And yet God continued to be faithful and patient with us. Because then what would we say? Oh, give us a king. If you give us a king, like all of the other pagan followers, if you give us a king, then we can find the best and the brightest and the best looking king, and we'll follow him, and he'll lead us to the promised land. And then what happens? Eventually, like humans do, we fail. And even well-intentioned, David, the man after God's own heart, would fall to sin. God would restore him, but yet still, he wasn't really an example of child-rearing. He had an affair. Had The woman that he had an affair with had her husband killed. Why? Because he's human. Okay, kings didn't do it. You know what we should have done? We should have... St- stuck with the prophets. Samuel, we sh- if we would have listened to Samuel, so, so God, give us prophets. If you could give us prophets, we could figure this thing out. Problem was, they didn't want to listen to prophets. And yet God was still faithful and he was still patient. Why? Because he had a plan that was at work and they didn't even see it. You see, after much prophecy after prophecy had not been heard and had ceased in a period of silence while the world thought that God had forgotten them he was setting them up for the greatest demonstration of love they had ever experienced because he knew that we couldn't do it on our own so he made a covenant with us coming in the person of Jesus who fulfilled the law, who was the only righteous judge, who was a victorious and glorious king, and who would stand as a prophet, fulfilling the prophecy and speaking prophecy over us. Jesus is the point of the story. And he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again so that you could be a part of that story, that you could be a part of that great, glorious love story, that great, glorious victory that he won on the cross for you. Over the course of these next four weeks, we're going to look at some different characters in the Old Testament. We're going to look at them with fresh eyes and see how Jesus has been revealed. My prayer is that we, at the end of this, And along the way would be like these two that walked with Jesus. That our hearts would begin to burn as he 
is revealed throughout the whole of Scripture. See, one of the things that amazes me is that they had been on this two-and-a-half-hour journey. They get to their place. Jesus is walking on and say, hey, it's late. Why don't you just come in? It was kind of the end of the night. They were, they were wrapping things up, and yet when they realized who he was, it says they immediately ran back to Jerusalem. I don't do a lot of running, but I'm telling you right now, if I just walk two, two and a half hours, I'll be like, you know what? Next, tomorrow morning. No, no, no. There was something that had happened to them that was so amazing. They had become so alive and so on fire and so, and, and, and so caught up in his greatness that they immediately had to respond. My prayer is that God would awaken us in such a way that we just can't keep going on business as usual. That the revelation of his love, again, it's not about we aren't made righteous by what we do, but that the revelation of who we are in his love would awaken us so much that what we do, we'll never do the same. I'll never love the same. I'll never forgive the same. I'll never grieve the same. Why? Because I know there's hope. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your love, you bring revelation. You didn't have to meet those guys, but you did. In the same way that you don't have to meet us this morning. You don't owe us anything. And yet because you love us, you have come to make yourself known. Lord, whether we've been walking on this road for a long time or whether we just hopped on trying to understand you more. Lord, I'm asking that you would open our eyes. That you would open our eyes to see you appropriately. That you would open our eyes to see your goodness, your faithfulness. That you would open our eyes to see your great affection revealed time and time again through the scripture and not just through the scripture, throughout our own lives. But I pray that even as we begin to look in to the Old Testament and look into these scriptures and see you, that you would help us to see you in the different seasons of our own lives, that we'd realize that we were not abandoned, that we were not rejected, that we were not orphaned, but that you have cared for us, you've provided for us, that you've been with us each and every step of the way. Lord, help us to see you like never before. Help us to be drawn to you, and Lord, help our hearts burn for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget, you can find us online at cityoflights.church and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.